0: Where have we been? Once again, number one, the most important commandment, the Shema. Two, God is spirit. Three, scripture is God's word, trust in God's word. Four, Christ as true temple. Five, who is man? Who is Christ's family? Remember, each one of these is, can a believing, practicing LDS actually believe Jesus? So the claim, of course, they're in the one true church of Jesus, though the streak of universalism often takes over um, when you talk to LDS. But the, the question is, in the one true church of Jesus, can you actually believe what Jesus taught? And that, of course, is the theme. And so let's keep going. We're halfway there. Number six, what is marriage? And, of course, Jesus teaching no marriage in heaven And, of course, maybe maybe a side gig on was Jesus married? Okay. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, starting in verse... Let's start in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came up to him... There is a lot in here, and once again, we see that overlap. Does he say, hey, go pray, get your own answer, go get this experience, trust these men, trust your rituals, trust your works? No. He answers, have you not read? And to go along with that, with Jesus' view of Scripture, in this passage, notice he cites Genesis 127. So it's a... He's, he's saying, oh, have you not read it? And then he points to the very first couple pages of the Bible. Have you, have you not read, you know, right at the beginning? We've seen this already in Mark 7, and making void the word word of God. And he cites the Creator at the beginning. In fact, um, there's a good commentator who, who translates this. Have you not read that the Creator at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, so this is not a break, in Jesus, and then Jesus quotes another verse. No, the Creator said. The Creator said, and then it's the interpretation given by the author of Genesis in Genesis two twenty four. That's key uh, to realize because Jesus is interpreting what the scribe wrote as the Creator speaking in Genesis two twenty four. Remember, and this goes back to the last bonus episode of last year where I tried to give a little bit of an outline of at least the general authorities um, and one particularly influential BYU professor just because he was such a great example, but at least a range of some official views of the Bible. None of them except Genesis. None of them. Joseph Fielding Smith doesn't. B.H. Roberts doesn't. William Chamberlain doesn't. They all, because of their temple, think they know better than this. So, what exactly what Jesus is using, and the Pharisees are not even pushing back on, in terms of the source of the authority, what should decide the dispute? Right, is the very thing no Mormon actually can affirm, actually can affirm. That's that's a big deal. We can't just read right past that. This is a challenge to the LDS. If you if you're LDS and listening you you claim to believe in the one true church of Jesus can you trust Jesus on this because Christians do we take what Jesus said and we don't we may have questions we may wrestle with it but we do not question it let alone the foundation of it and notice he then goes on and puts on par I say to you it's almost as if when Jesus speaks God speaks yep yep that's what we believe the one God remember the most important commandment so now let's, let's slow down a little bit here. Not only does Jesus' argument only make sense if he presupposed that the words of Genesis are the words of God and thus convey the mind of God. He's actually, this is a really important hermeneutical point, hermeneutical meaning interpretive uh, structure, right? The, the structure of your interpretation, how you're interpreting the text. They are appealing with Moses to Deuteronomy 24, what does Jesus do? To give a little context here, um, there was a Jewish debate, and there's a lot on this. I'm going to make this quick. At the time, we have the school of Hillel that took a more liberal, let's say, approach to um, Deuteronomy 24, to divorce his wife for every cause. And then there's this other school of Shammai that limited it to unchastity, um, and if you just look at a debate over Deuteronomy 24, Jesus is clearly in the more conservative school. Uh, so forget that. Jesus is always the progressive uh, model that we, for some, I don't know when that came about. But he's, he's actually even more strict than some of the Shema'i. There's, there's some evidence that the, the school of Shammai would have included other things than what Jesus says here as unchastity. But this is not for Jesus, just a debate within Deuteronomy 24. In fact... He roots it in creation itself. And, and this, is, this is key because Genesis 1 and 2, this is God's original intention, original design, right? First principles, created pattern, God's stated intention, right? What is Deuteronomy 24 in the context of that? Well, it's a long ways after what? Genesis 3, the fall. We already covered some of this with what Jesus' view of man, you being evil, repent or perish, right? Original sin. If you if you see it as an original blessing, or you see it as an opportunity, or just a you know a fall, fall upwards, or just um, a quirk in the cosmos where you have to be able to make mistakes in order to progress, and therefore ultimately it's a good thing. Adam fell that men might have joy. You're not going to see this point. Deuteronomy 24 is in a context of a post-fall world. It's legislation in response to human sin, right? It's an unideal situation. This is key, too, when you hear liberals point out the slavery provisions. Um, this is a divine condescension to make the best of a bad job at that time, right? And, and so this is not meant to be where we start a debate over divorce, it, it's not meant to be that. Instead, the original principle is what should inform right, the later concession to human sin and weakness. So the, I mean, this is a matter of priority, but often so much uh, debates over ethics, um, halakha, right, what is lawful, gets bogged down in not prioritizing the text the way the text itself would prioritize it, in Jesus as God, um, is helping us out to see clearly what should be the priority. And then notice Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female? There's a lot of stuff in here for today's time male, female. There was a beginning, <laughs> um, not just a beginning ish. Um, and then this. The two shall become one flesh. We have one uh, text in the Dead Sea Scrolls that brings out this insight that um, even a Jewish scholar, um, who I find insightful um, at, at many points, points out this is a text that was probably being used against polygamy at the time. Now, that's not clearly clearly that's not the direct point. That doesn't mean Jesus often uses a direct point to address other points, just as we do, uh, based on what Jesus taught, right? His point is not to affirm the gender binary for people in 2023 America. That being said, that is a truth from the text, right? Well, at the time, right, polygamy, another one of these um, sinful corruptions um, that we see even in the Old Testament, That's, that needs to be emphasized. And, of course, with LDS in mind— which still allow polygamy to this day. Is Nelson sealed to more than one woman? Yes, that would be polygamy, at least in, from the eternal perspective. And I would think that the practice in the most sacred place of, of LDSism would be more determinative than a page on the website. Now, um, that is key to seeing this exception. So he then says, Well, God joins cements together, right? let not man separate. But what is the, the act that separates them, that almost automatically, in a sense, destroys the marriage, is the sexual union. And it's a way of usurping, so to speak, of rebelling, um, trying to overthrow the function that, uh, of the God who set it up, set up marriage. So this is, this is really interesting. This is not just Jesus simply making a pronouncement against the currently accepted teaching. He, he is showing us how to engage um, the, the Old Testament to address things in the current state, and I think we can, once again, safely do so within the same passage when we say two and one. Not, not uh, one man and then however many women he happens to be sealed to, or whatever, um, two and one. It's a monogamous standard. And, of course, we see this in Revelation, right? The bride and the bridegroom. Really, marriage is a shadow of the ultimate wedding banquet, which is Christ and his bride, uh, the church. Now, why does Moses concede, once again, the hardness of your heart? Sin. And where they say Moses' command, Jesus says, allows, permits. Permits. And then he says, whoever divorces his wife, except for this exception, which is key to what he just cited in Genesis 2, marries another, commits adultery. Now, what's interesting, and this is is jumping ahead a little bit to where Jesus teaches there's no marriage in heaven, but another thing that an LDS needs to realize is if they think that marriage continues after death, and then they remarry and consummate that marriage, that would also violate what Jesus is saying. Because the whole point here, if you if you hold these two texts, is death could be a reason for remarriage because there is no marriage in heaven. <laughs> there, so, so just something to keep in mind. Now, what's interesting is with how strict Jesus' view on this is, the disciples' in instinctive reaction is what? Did say, well, if that's the case, you know, it's better not to marry. I mean, I what about my Choices. What about my agency in life? Um, well, <laughs> he he. What's interesting is this, maybe even hyperbolic, instinctual moment. Reacting clearly, they hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus turns that into a serious point, and um, a serious point that also, on the other hand, challenges a mainstream Judaism that doesn't recognize celibate singleness as. An option. Um, and um, I can't help but think of Jesus as being a, a, clear, a glaring example of precisely this option. So he then talks of celibate singleness in the form of this passage on eunuchs. Now, look how often Jesus is using this word. This is really interesting. He uses the noun eunuch three times and the verb to make a eunuch to, right, twice. It's almost like, don't miss this point, Jesus. Don't miss this point. In the context of a divine gift, in the context of a divine gift, so who have been given, right? Divine gift language, meaning, and gift uh, biblically understood, meaning it's giving, given to some, not others. We see this in with Paul, right, in 1 Corinthians 7. seven, To speak of a gift of this uh this form of celibacy is to assume the marriage is still the norm. It's not an anti-marriage point, but it is a almost a reprioritization of a point that becomes so embedded in the culture that we sometimes forget why it's there. Why it's there? Um, I don't know how else to um, see this as this is, is. If you look at cultural expectation. There's going to be like a hinge or a point around which you see the flexibility on the other side. And, of course, in this culture, it was assumed marriage, have kids. But why? Why? What is that marriage, even in Genesis 2, ultimately pointing to? And um, this is why. It's not just, uh, oh, because they want to make themselves eunuchs or whatever. It's for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. For the sake of the king, that's the purpose. That's the purpose behind marriage, and that would be the purpose behind a celibate singleness. So that shows the real priority here that Jesus is going to shift. And it is true at times in church history that shift has made um, has become a mistake, an overcorrection, and and act, acting like uh, celibate singleness is somehow a higher spiritual life or something like that. That's not what's being said here. He's just making room for this option. Um, and as a divine gift for some. And uh, to, to kind of segue into LDS culture um, with this final point on this is eunuchs were an object of pity, not horror. This is one of the commentators, uh, good commentators on, on, on Matthew. He said, the culture is one where marriage and the procreation of children are so much taken for granted as the norm that strong language is needed to make the point. The abnormality in that culture of a man's not being married meant that there was little room in popular thinking for a middle way between marriage and being a eunuch. Jesus' saying is framed against this black and white background. Now, think of LDS culture, which is more tolerant of different kinds, whether they call it polygamy or not. Being sealed to more than one woman, uh, supposedly for eternity, Um, The idea that it could come back. What's the purpose of marriage in an LDS system is ultimately exaltation, right? Um, Now that comes through differently at different times, but it's a way you exalt yourself is through your marriage partners. And procreation is often associated with priesthood power, right? The, The priesthood power of the gods. And therefore having kids and all that, I mean, right? I mean, I don't... LDS out there, am I am I telling the truth on this? If you interact with them for any minute, this is this is their gospel. Families forever, being married eternally, having kids forever, helping them progress to then become polygamous like yourselves, like in some form or another, right? And even if they don't practice it the same way now, the idea is in eternity they will. Uh, McConkie even said that Jesus would reinstitute it in the millennium. So that's not a culture that doesn't believe it. But once again, Think of what it is. How does that function? Why could they? How could LDS affirm what Jesus teaches here on the Eunuchs? Right? How? <laughs> if if procreation is part of the priesthood, no wonder Jesus has to be married, whether it's explicitly stated in the manual this year or not, or any you know recent of recent time. Um, and having children is a must, even in terms of fulfilling those covenants. This is a key text. Um, You know, I think, yes, a lot of evangelical culture has maybe a position a little closer to the Pharisees on this, um, or the disciples on this, I should say, in terms of um, maybe their justification for not getting married would be that it is too hard for them, right? Um, But Jesus is is restructuring our priorities here that I think is is really key. To, to see. Um, and it's it's just really interesting, even the doubling down of this. don't Don't miss this. The first two categories are incapable of marriage, right? But the third represents those who have chosen celibacy. Is Jesus himself a prime example of this? It's an argument from silence, but I think a pretty good one. We'll get to that here in a minute. And that those who have chosen this, right, It's ascribed not to disinclination, but once again, to their perception of God's will for them, for the kingship of heaven, right, of God's sovereign authority, and it's in obedience to that authority that they've been prepared to stand apart from this normal expectation, even a biblical expectation of marriage and parenthood, right? So, this is, um, you know, (laughs) this is clearly God's people are not all called to the same, right, the same path of obedience, so, this is uh, fascinating. This is just a fascinating text. So, what? Once again, as we continue to this second one um, in in Matthew, um, let's see where's my notes here, twenty two. Um, once again, keep in mind the LDS emphasis on sealed families and all of that, um, and say, hey. In the true church of Jesus, can you believe this? Can you believe this? Because even if they make exceptions, oh, you can't have kids in this life, the expectation is you will in the next life, or you should by adoption. I mean, there's no... The very thing Jesus teaches here is not allowable in Mormon theology. That should be important. And, 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 and of course, in a cultural milieu that is demeaning marriage, we can overreact and not properly emphasize what Jesus teaches here as Christians. So that's key to see. Okay. Matthew 22, 23 through 33, okay, is another one that I want to tie to this uh, same point. The same day Sadducees came to him. So first time it's Pharisees, here Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Raise up, that's a key word here. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the women the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures, the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. They neither marry nor are given in marriage in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So let's do this again. Let's go through a little Slowly, I'm taking a little more time on this one, because this is so key to see. These are devastating passages for Mormon theology, if Jesus is to be prioritized in anything but a name of a church, okay? So the Sadducees, these are leading elite priestly families. Um, Of course, this um, riddle presupposes the belief they reject. They are ridiculing a belief in resurrection that Jesus clearly shares with the Pharisees, um, and we do have evidence, look at Acts three eight that um, perhaps the, the main, at least the mainstream Sadducee belief was souls disappear along with bodies. Kind of interesting. They don't believe in a predestination, um, any, so it's, they don't believe in fate. Um, they kind of place God beyond doing anything or even seeing evil. So they see everything is more free will based and they don't have penalties or rewards after death. So it's a very distant monotheism, almost deistic, which leaves this room for human autonomy. And a canonical um, issue here is yet they do see themselves as kind of prioritizing Mosaic religion, in the sense of maybe they only believed in the first five books of Moses and would see the belief in resurrection and an afterlife as um, later development, innovation, perhaps. So, this is their attempt at exposing the whole idea of resurrection that uh, Jesus is assumed to support and to expose it as ridiculous. Uh, perhaps they saw this belief um, as also maybe a distraction to true Mosaic religion. You know, I can't I can't help but get this uh, sense that um, <laughs> in emphasizing William Moses, maybe they were some of the first red letter Bible <laughs> people, <laughs> except, except instead of just, oh, I just go by the words of Jesus. They're doing that with Moses. It's just like, unless Moses said it, I don't believe it. All right. So it's the red letter Bible. A group. Um, I know that's overdoing the point, but you hear what I'm saying. So this is, uh, Jesus' response is going to be structured this way. He's going to explain how they've misunderstood the nature of resurrection by an assumption that he disagrees with that the present life is analogous to the future life. It's assuming that it is analogous to the present life, and that it must be. Um, LDS, is believe this explicitly. Um, if you listen to our King Follett Discourse series, Joseph Smith, who says he doesn't fear hell uh, in, the, in sermon, uh, we're going to get to hell. Uh, he also says, all oh, your loved ones, they're just living in a world just like this one. It's fine. You're just separated for a little bit of time. Don't worry, right? Don't worry. We're going to see what Jesus thinks about that here in a minute. But Jesus, in this passage, says that's a faulty assumption. And then the basic issue underlying the question, whether there are scriptural grounds for believing in resurrection at all, Jesus addressed by citing what something, I mean, he could have easily cited Daniel, for example, uh, where it's explicitly taught, I think, in Daniel 12, if I'm not mistaken. But no, he cites Exodus based on haven't you read. So the question the Pharisees ask, it starts with a mosaic institution of leveret marriage. This is Um, to provide continual family line for a man who died childless and so preserve his um, name, maybe inheritance. Um, It's a summary rather than a quotation. And interestingly enough, it's Deuteronomy 25. So we just went from a debate over divorce in Deuteronomy 24. Now we're in Deuteronomy 25. Um, There is built in, as I pointed out, this raise up offspring. This is the word, raise up, it's a cognate verb of the word for resurrection. So the whole underlying issue they 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 are putting in this uh, question, of course, uh, teacher Moses said, and um, I guess the idea is that the 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 only sort of resurrection of the dead that they see Moses allowing, um, the theology of Moses is allowing, is the production of an heir that it kind of in memory you live on. Um, which is interesting, and then they do say among us. This is a, a detail that's kind of interesting. Um, they, they seem to be. It's theoretically possible. This really is a test case. Um, even if it's a rare case, they're using this test case to, 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 I guess, reduce to absurdity. It's a reductio ad absurdum, right? And and notice too, this is. A <laughs> This is one of the few contexts in which this point needs to be made at all, is that the idea of resurrection for them, right, since the woman is destined to spend eternity, if this is like, oh, we live eternally, then they apparently the marriage must continue eternally. Jesus is going to uh, counter that point here. And, of course, polyandry is not acceptable, except to Joseph Smith. So, the, the <laughs> If you, if you read um, in Sacred Loneliness, right, I can't remember the exact number, um, but it's like nine or something out of the first 12 polygamous marriages were polyandrous. It's a good way to uh, get what you want out of a situation. But if they end up pregnant, you can still claim it's someone else's. So uh, <laughs> why does that have to be said? The assumption, of course, that Jesus and the Sadducees, neither of them are going to question is that's crazy. Um, they're not waiting for that to be restored. Um, but... Once again, though, they're just saying, hey, hey, if you continue internally, wouldn't those marriages continue internally? This is a good question. It's not just a chump too quickly to um, dislike it. It's a great opportunity. Even if the Sadducees don't deserve a serious answer, the, the question does deserve a serious answer. This is a pastoral one as well. If what were successive marriages on earth are contemporaneous in heaven, then what does that do to the nature of the marriage relationship? Once again, building on, is it a 2-1 thing or not? So, Jesus traces this error to two related causes. One, their ignorance of what is written in Scripture. Their ignorance of what is written in Scripture. Two, their basically secular viewpoint. That's a quote from R.T. France. Basically secular viewpoint. This is... um, probably extension of the first point, this results from not being sufficiently open to scriptural truth. Because they're seeing everything in terms of this world and that basically continuing, if the idea is true, they, and they do not reckon any real divine dimension, of course they're not going to be able to understand much about life after death. And of course, this accusation of not knowing the scriptures will be particularly provocative when addressed to a group whose beliefs um, they saw as proudly founded on those of Moses. And of course, he's going to go straight to Moses um, here pretty quickly. Now verse 33, or sorry, in verse 30, rather, um, in the resurrection, um, this, in effect, would be in heaven, right? It's He's actually not referring to the event of the resurrection here, if you read it closely, but the state of life which follows that event. So in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are married, right? And, and this is interesting as well. This is... Um, it's... It is on that aspect of heavenly life that Jesus answered. That that it's a theme, is it? Is this not a theme in Jesus' teachings? His 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 focus primarily is on creation and what that means about the end. It's on heaven primarily, and then secondarily on this on this in this world. And it's a mistake, apparently, to picture life in heaven as being simply an extrapolation of life on earth. This is somehow the power of God that they're missing. It creates something different, fitted um, to a life which is not temporary, but eternal. So, um, sexual life is obviously going to be affected by this, right? Procreation belongs to earthly, not to heavenly life. And where there is no birth, growth, or death, right? That is one of the assumptions here, Um, marriage as the institution within the earthly procreation is set is therefore out of place in the riddle. And that means that the exclusiveness, which links one man with one woman in a jealously guarded relationship, doesn't in the same sense apply. Uh, People in heaven will be like angels who don't marry or procreate because they are eternal. This is very, very interesting um, teaching. I don't hear this emphasized Enough, but this this is the logic of his response to the problem of multiple earthly marriages, right? It's separated by death, of course, not uh, polygamist, as we saw two one, so it solves this problem because it's declaring that relate marriage relationship to be a temporary earthly thing, a good thing here, but it's a temporary earthly thing, so. That being said, of course, this is not saying there's no love in heaven or anything like that, but perhaps heavenly relationships are something more than that. Um, and I think our problem here is like the Sadducees, and sometimes subconsciously assuming that we have only this life's experience by which to measure that which is to come, but here we have the Lord of glory himself revealing more. We, we don't know what it's like to be like angels in heaven um, who do not marry and are not married. And notice to the wording, um, this will. This is referring to the bridegroom and also the bride's father to give in marriages, getting permission from the father. Now, in thirty-one to thirty-two, he then keeps going, and as for or but about this is, he's he's almost I've, since I've answered that. Um, He's going to keep going. He, he answered the specific question. He now turns to the basic theology, which prompted the question. And his text is Exodus 3.6. Okay. This is God's address to Moses at the burning bush. Um, while Moses is addressed in the narrative setting, as part of Holy Scripture, it's also God's declaration to you. We've already covered this, but it's worth repeating that what God told Moses... He, he said, to you, can an LDS believe that? Can an LDS believe that? Or will they emphasize their own experiences? By identifying himself with these famous men, whose earthly life was finished centuries before he spoke to Moses, God implies that that relationship is still good. That God's relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still good. This is really, really interesting. Now, some will emphasize the linguistic argument on the verb, um, which does work for the Greek, not so much for the Hebrew. But either way, I think this is, um, whether that's primarily the argument, I think the argument is based on the nature of God's relationship to his human followers, which will assume what? That God is not a human. (laughs) It is a distinct, when God's relationship to man is different than my relationship to other people right he, this is not this is this argument would not work if this is peter's relationship to james well since peter says you know i'm the friend of james back there a long time ago clearly there's life after death that doesn't work but the god who is the source of life to have a relationship with as the god of abraham isaac and jacob that's what makes this different That's what is evidence for life after death. That the covenant which God binds himself to with Abraham is too strong to be terminated by death. To be associated with the living God is to be taken beyond the temporary life of earth into a relationship that lasts as long as God lasts. Those with whom the living God identifies himself cannot be truly dead, therefore, they must be alive with him after their earthly life is finished. That's R.T. France. Once again, this is the power of God, as Jesus teaches, um, providing an assurance that life after death was not just innovative theology, but is real, in a sense, realized theology. It's theology already there that, say, Daniel is seeing clearly, and even if he's developing it a little more. It finds its roots in the essential nature of the living covenant-making God Himself. The God of Israel is not a God of the dead. That's not. That's no, no. Death came by sin, right? Um, it, it, the God revealed in the Pentateuch is a God of life. So, I I hope I, I could go a lot more into. Um, the LDS theology of especially the early stuff. I mean, this is this is hit at various points, right? They they have a different view of scripture, a different view of spiritual gifts is something that they all you know, gifts are like a ladder that you need to work yourself up to you get all of them. The two one thing that they don't have, um, in fact Hebrew C. Kimball, um said, quote, you might as well deny Mormonism and turn away from it as to oppose the plurality of wives. This is a First Presidency member. Um, he says, let the presidency of this church and the 12 apostles and all the authorities unite and say with one voice that they will oppose that doctrine, and the whole of them would be damned. Of course, you know, there's no hell in it, so it just means you're a little lower on the ladder for a while. But still, like, it is in, in an integral part of Mormon theology. It still is. Um, and uh, so they don't have the 2-1 thing. The celibacy point makes no sense. Um, Orson Hyde, right, who... I, once again, President Orson Hyde gave this sermon. And, and once again, people say, well, that's just Orson Hyde. Well, if it weren't for Brigham's power play in the 1875 General Conference, where he quietly demoted with no explanation offered to the congregation... Um, Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt. He demoted them down the line, um, which disproves the direct line of priesthood authority by seniority, by the way. If you went by priesthood authority by seniority, Orson Hyde would have been the third president of the church in 1877. So if it weren't for Brigham Young's power, his manipulative power, that he based on no authority whatsoever... The man who said this would have been the third president of the church, and he said that Jesus was married at Cana. And that if he was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha and a train of women and the other Mary with whom Jesus loved uh, must have been highly unbecoming and improper to say the best of it. That he had, obviously, children. Um, He uses an Isaiah passage that he shall see his seed to interpret that Jesus will see his Earthly descendants. Right. And he says this. There's there actually is an early Mormon view of election uh, that is sometimes missed. He says that this doctrine, the long-faced hypocrite and the sanctimonious bigot, that would be me, uh, will probably cry blasphemy. Uh, Continuing on, if God be not our father, grandfather, or great-grandfather, or some kind of father in reality, indeed in truth, why are we to say our Father who art in heaven? As if LDS ever say the Lord's Prayer. How much, um, let's see, how much um, soever of the holy horror this doctrine may excite in persons not impregnated with the blood of Christ? Uh, there's a doctrine in Mormonism called believing blood. It's not emphasized as much because it's so tied to the racism that I think is also an essential part of Mormon theology, though it's, they've done they've distanced themselves a little bit more from that <laughs> than polygamy, given Nelson's multiple wives. That being said, that's what he said. Uh, how, like the holy whore, this doctrine will excite if you don't have the blood of Christ in you and whose minds are consequently dark and benighted. Dark and benighted may excite in persons um, not impregnated with the blood of Christ and whose minds are consequently dark and benighted, it may excite still more when they are told that if none of the natural blood of Christ flows in their veins, they are not the chosen or elect of God. Well, object not therefore too strongly against the marriage of Christ, but remember that in the last days, secret and hidden things must come to light, and that your life also, which is the blood, is hid with Christ and God. So since you're a Mormon, You probably have the blood of Christ in you. That's why you can respond to us. Abraham was chosen of God for the purpose of raising up a chosen seed and a peculiar people unto his name. Jesus Christ was sent into the world for a similar purpose. (laughs) Wow. Uh, As someone who is in a tradition that equates the Abrahamic covenant with the gospel, (laughs) which I know is not the view of our Baptist brothers and sisters, still, that's not this kind of equation. (laughs) That is pretty incredible. So Abraham is supposed to have kids, see? Uh, luckily, he got at least one out, and then uh, Jesus came in for a similar purpose, but upon a more extended scale. See, he's meant to have a lot more kids. Is there no way provided for those to come into this covenant relation who may not possess in their veins any blood of Abraham or of Christ? Oh, okay, so he does say, well, okay, Can there are some people that may be interested in Mormonism that don't have the blood of Jesus in them. Yes, Okay, so we're going to hear, how do they respond? By doing the works of Abraham and of Christ. By just that, just do the works that they did. In the faith of Abraham and of Christ. Not in unbelief and unrighteousness, like the wicked world, who have damned themselves in their own corruption and unbelief. So that is the guy who, according to current LDS priesthood authority, claims by seniority should have been the third president of the church. But apparently that's not relevant to a lot of people out there. So, once again, polygamy... Yes, even today families forever, marriage not only being in heaven, it's the basis upon qualifying for the highest levels of heaven. Well, D&C 131, D&C 132, procreative powers, priesthood power, including even the LDS feminists that used to emphasize this more. Maybe now I, there's they're not as consistent in their voice there. They're they tend in at least in the social media feeds I see, they tend to be just more, you know, the Gospels, the Democratic Party. But um, <laughs> You know, but still, this is clearly not the view. But let's let's take on um, just a couple things. And we have earlier, um, earlier on where if you look at, we, we have an episode, G, Was Jesus Married? I think is the title. Um, one of the earlier episodes. We also have an episode, I think it's episode 20, on the Family Proclamation of the World showing the changes in Mormon's view on monogamy. Polygamy was not seen. For a long time, it was not seen as just more monogamy. In fact, um, you had public debates over this. They debated that this is the only thing in the economy of heaven. Um, And in fact, should I just give one of these quotes? The one-wife system not only degenerates the human family, both physically and intellectually, but it is entirely incompatible with philosophical notions of immortality. That, I think, is the opposite of what Jesus said. Um, in some, way, both in terms of this world and in terms of immortality. So where they, where Jesus said, "It's two become one," right? That's the standard for this world. And then there is no marriage in heaven. They say that that's uh, in, in another quote that that's a popish thing. That's a Roman Catholic conspiracy. Um, this is Deseret News Millennial Star Journal Discourse um, Sermons. Um, for them, apparently the celibate priesthood of Rome is who (laughs) perpetuated the one wife system. I, you don't make this, don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. Like, I don't know how that works, but, but anyway, and the one wife system is actually, um, said to degenerate the human family. It's evil and only polygamy is good, um, it, Brigham Young, the only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. So, um, so yeah, you need Jesus to not only be married, um, you need him to be a polygamist and to have children. And sure enough, Jedediah M. Grant, who was a first presidency member, gave a sermon in which he said the reason Jesus was crucified was the plurality of wives, that that caused the persecution of Jesus. Talk about making him in your image. Um, Now, was Jesus married? Let's uh, open to John 2, this wedding at Cana. Let's at least get rid of this idea just while we're at it. John chapter 2. Okay. And let's go verse by verse here. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Notice, Jesus' mother is there. If this was Jesus' wedding, why would you have to say that? It's Of course, this is a superfluous detail. Why say that if the wedding is Jesus' wedding? Let's keep going. Verse 2. Jesus was also invited to the wedding. We, invited to the wedding. Why would Jesus be invited to his own wedding? Right. And who should have been the third president of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day saints, claims this was his wedding. <laughs> See, because it's not a textual religion, and I hope the LDS listening see that. I, unfortunately, um, I know, as we go through all ten of these, even if you're honest enough, and this is the goal, honest enough to see that's what the text says and even what it means, you're probably going to lean into yourself. And that's the opposite of what I hope you do. Jesus says, have you not read? Right? Lean into the text. Lean into Christ, biblically understood. Um, but instead it's, they, they like the secret knowledge. They almost, the text is a barrier to their own spiritual enlightenment. Um, I just hope at least this can show you that at least you can't, you can't defend this position. And, and by the way, there's no evidence even from the so-called Gnostic Gospels that Jesus was married either. Um, not that those are authoritative on the historical Jesus anyway, but um, that's actually one of these myths that just won't go away. And in fact, the, gospel, the so-called Gospel of Jesus' wife, that I, I remember sitting in a classroom when it was used as evidence of the LDS position. Yep, could name names. Um, When it was found out to be a forgery, did it turn out to be evidence against the position? No, it's only evidence in favor of. Once it's a forgery, you just stop talking about it. So it can be evidence, only one way, which shows the real priority of the system. Okay, so Jesus is invited, not to his own wedding. That wouldn't make any sense. Let's keep going. Um, And by the way, the host... um, (laughs) We know that banquets were held at the bridegroom's or his father's. If you look at Matthew 22 and Matthew 25, we see this. All right, verse 3. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Right? Um, and Jesus said to her, notice that they is the wedding party here, the bride and the groom. They have no wine. Mary, the mother of Jesus, said this to Jesus. They have wine no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> well, if you're the bridegroom, <laughs> I, just, yeah, I would say it has a lot to do with you. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, um, all right. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Six. In fact, let's jump down to 9, just for the sake of time. The master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. It did not know where it came f- uh, came from, though the servants had, who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Uh, notice this master of the feast says to the bridegroom, and this is not said to Jesus, um, who is in this scene. So the, the bridegroom is not named, but, no, the it's just, yeah, clearly not Jesus' wedding. Let's keep going. Um, verse 12, after this, so after this wedding, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and his wives and children. No, it doesn't say that. His mother, his brothers, his disciples, not his wife. Not his wife. Um, so... In a culture big on husband duties, in fact, Jesus, as we just saw, very strict view of marriage, very strict limits on divorce, um, supposedly left his wife um, in Cana to go off with his friends and mother and brothers. So notice, we have Jesus' family members mentioned. We have the brother of the Lord. Brothers are mentioned here. We have the mother of the Lord. She's mentioned here. We have sisters mentioned. You know, we have James and Jude in the New Testament. Never wife. Never, let alone wives, right? Except in regard to the church. And we already covered that, but to bring it back in. He is the bridegroom. That literally is a title. And notice, every time it talks about it, find LDS, I challenge you to find an exception to this. There's no anxiety to distinguish or clarify that this doesn't mean his actual wife. It, it's just understood that, he doesn't have one, apparently. <laughs> Therefore, people just see, oh, yeah, his wife is the church, at least eschatologically realized, right? The church in the end. And that's the wedding banquet that we see in Revelation. Um, if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 9 5, there's an interesting passage that is also evidence um, from from Paul, um, indirectly, of course, where he talks about, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Kephas. So Peter, why not mention Jesus in this list? I mean, if Jesus were married, <laughs> that would be pretty much all you needed to make this point. Um, but he doesn't. He, he even mentions his brothers. No mention of his wife, and, and because he didn't have one. Um, so <laughs> this is, I think, really key to see, really key to see. Was Jesus married? Well, once again, he is, in fact, he's married in the sense that it actually is eternal, Right. We don't believe in, the, in families forever based on some self-designed family that we have priesthood power to enable to continue based upon our worthiness or whatever. No. In, in, with ceilings with done and temples made with hands. No. No. The real family that's forever is this wedding between Christ and his bride, the believing church. Right? That's the one family of God, the bride of Christ, who in Christ are a forever family. That's the eternal family. That's the eternal marriage. That is the reality to which even faithful believing marriages today ultimately point to in every aspect, in every aspect. And that's how we hold together, right? That's how we hold together all of this. The appeal to Genesis we see as authoritative. And then when he says, I say, we see it as authoritative, right? So, this is key to see. This is absolutely key to see. And I just wish, I wish, my plea for LDS listeners, if we have any, is to reconsider. If you love Jesus, what he teaches should matter. What he teaches should matter.